Hey, good morning. Hey, t- turn with me, if you would, uh, using whatever uh, means you have, whether it be a digital copy, whether iPad, iPhone, uh, a hard copy. Uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. Now, I, I will say this is kind of a disclaimer, probably one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, right? And I know what you're thinking, oh no, if Trent loves this chapter, we're doomed, right? Could, this thing could last forever. But uh, this, this chapter right here, man, is, is not only one of my favorite chapters, but even uh, uh, across the board, transcending church culture, uh, reaching into secular culture, this story has been told through song, this story has been told through uh, movies. Uh, many of you have seen uh, the, the Prince of Egypt, and you've seen this demonstrated. Many of you have identified <clears throat> Moses as looking a lot like uh, Charlton Heston because of this, right? Every time you envision Moses, you see Charlton Heston, right? The Ten Commandments. And so <clears throat> in chapter 14, uh, there's so much in chapter 14. I would like to say you say to you that we're going to get to the banks of the Red Sea and we're going to cross it today and we're going to get to the other side. But in all reality, that's not going to happen. But I will say to you, to set a goal out before you, that next week we will be on the other side of the Red Sea. But there's just too much going on in this scripture for us to make it that far. There's too much to miss. And, uh, and so we'll just, we'll just cover the rest of chapter 14 uh, next week. But... Uh, I do want you guys to turn with me to chapter 14. We'll read some scripture, and uh, we'll kind of give a little background, and then we'll move forward, okay? And so we're going to be looking at the first 14 verses of Exodus chapter 14. So we're going to read this, all right? So you can just follow along with me, um, or you, you can watch on the monitors up here as Clark so beautifully leads us through the scripture as I read it. He's giving me the thumbs up. And so he's good to go. Chapter 14, verse 1. And the scripture, and listen, you guys know this. Uh, when, when any scripture starts like this, we need to buckle down and we need to listen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near, it's called Pi-Hiharoth, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots. And I want you to envision this. Uh, Egyptian uh, history will will, uh, reveal this. They, They suggest that the best chariots were basically... Chariots that uh, uh, carry three soldiers. You had basically two fighting soldiers and one driver of the chariot. So when you think this, 
just triple that in regards to manpower regarding the occupation of these chariots. And it said, uh, uh, he took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Important. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Heroth, opposite baal Zephon. As, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians, a sight to behold, right? Marching after them, they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Did we not say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses answered the people, and he says, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Thank you. The Egyptians you see today, you will never, never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So Father, in Jesus' name, we'll, we'll try to remove ourselves. We'll not want to create a barrier between your word and your spirit and the hearts of the hearer this morning. So we ask you now, O oh God, to override the efforts of, of men and, and speak through your spirit the words needed to be spoken to, into the hearts of those who hear this morning. We, we step out of the way and ask you, O oh God, to move amongst your people. In Jesus' name, we pray and ask this. Amen. Amen. Quick review, right? Quick review. Last week we were talking. You know, and we were moving uh, uh, through the scripture in chapter 13. And, and we had talked about how God was leading the children out of, out of Egypt. And the thing that we had focused on was the fact that they were not led the short way out. Remember that? God had taken them the long way, right? And then we had, we had talked about the benefits of God taking you and I the long way in the journey of faith at times. Because it's not just uh, uh, the end destination that is important, but it's the where and the when and the what that God is trying to achieve in our lives. So sometimes the long way is necessary for the timing to line up, right? Right? The gifts to be ascertained, the experience to be ascertained, the gain to be ascertained, and then to arrive at the right time in the right place able to do the right thing. So sometimes God takes us the long, the long road. And many of you know this to be true. The other thing we had spoken about was the fact that we, and this is a confession, right? God knows us better than we know ourselves. Remember that? Because he had said in the scripture that if they face war, they're going to end up back in Egypt. And God didn't deliver them from Egypt just so that they would end up back in Egypt. So God knew their weaknesses, Tim, better than they knew their weaknesses. They were probably saying, let's go the short route. And God was saying, there's things I see that you do not see, and there's things in you that I know that you do not know. Right? And sometimes we just have to concede God knows us best. Right? And then ultimately, 
we closed on the fact that the scripture says that they, they marched out almost in a military uh, uh, alignment or division or orientation and, uh, and what that really implied, Kevin. It wasn't that they were actually going out in battle, but they looked the part. God had already said that they wasn't fit for battle, that they were to return to Egypt. And we touched on the reality that God doesn't really concern himself with the way that we look, whether we look the part. God concerns himself with whether or not we are the part. And that's the most important thing. So that's where we find ourselves. And so here we are in this scripture. And so we're going to look at this, these first four verses. And one of the things that I want you guys to understand right off the bat, this is absolutely essential. He tells the Israelites to turn back and encamp. In, in a camp near Pahiroth between Migdal and the sea. Basically, he leads them back into a place where their backs were against the sea and they were basically facing the onslaught or the encroachment of the Egyptians. What, what, what would be perceived by yourself, Reuben, and myself, one of those spiritual cul-de-sacs, a dead end, no way out kind of thing, you know. And the one thing that you and I must concede right off the bat is that God's plan for you and God's plan for me always involves bringing glory to God. Amen. Do you understand? And that's what he says if you look at it down here in verse 4 he says, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. And there are many times in your life and in my life, Jay, that we just have to trust God's view of the situation. There are times, I, there's a scripture that's been so taken out of context sometimes, and we'll, we'll quote it uh, in, in uh, application when it's you know, at, at an advantage to us to help us discern certain things. And the scripture that is typically uh, quoted, is found in, uh, misquoted, is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, where the scripture says, For God is not the author of confusion. Right, So any moment in our life, any time when we're, we're uh, uncertain about something, we'll quote that scripture. As, as though because we don't have clarity on what God is saying to us, then whatever we're thinking it is, then we just blame it on, on God in a sense and say, well, he's not the author of confusion, so if I don't understand that, it can't be from God. Well, the context of the scripture is talking about propriety and worship. He's talking about literally that scripture, the application is how we conduct ourselves within the body of Christ, exercising the gifts of the Spirit. That's what it has to do with. Now we'll take that scripture and we'll say, as the children of Israel may have said, well, this is confusing. Why is he bringing us back a place that we've already passed? I'm really confused about this. Surely God isn't in this. But let me tell you what will arrest confusion in our lives. What will arrest confusion in our lives is to trust God. Amen. Believe me, if you're thinking that you're going to follow God, and I'm just being really clear with you, and you're not going to find yourself in seasons of confusion or not understanding, you're completely buying into a lie. 
There are times when you will not understand. There are times when you'll feel like you're in a vortex, you're in a whirlpool, you're in a, and then it's, uh, you, you've been submerged by a tidal wave. You do not understand it. But the only thing you can do in that moment to arrest all of those fears, to arrest the stress, to arrest the confusion is to trust God. My son, when he was a little boy, there were things that I would tell him. There were things that I would share with him. But if every direction I gave him at four and five years old, I had to explain to him where his small mind, young, underdeveloped, immature mind would have to grasp a larger uh, uh, model of things, a larger understanding, it would completely blow him away. So for me to explain all that would actually be, or just expose him to all of that, without him understanding the many variables that were in play, it would completely just crush him on an intellectual level. But what he had to do was say to himself and say to me, Dad loves me and I trust him. And even if I don't understand it, I know Dad's always got my best interest in mind. I'm just going to go with Dad. It doesn't matter whether or not I, I understand that. You see what I'm saying? And in those moments, his trust in me and my love for him arrests his fear that is generated by not understanding certain things. There will be moments in your life you will not understand what God is doing. And you must trust God's perspective on the matter, which is much clearer, much more concise, much more intentional than anything you could think or imagine. And we just have to trust him in that. Some of us have issues with trusting, right? Trust issues. One of the things I want you to understand this morning is this, as well. What we perceive to be that cul-de-sac, that dead end, is God's proving ground. Do you understand what I'm saying? These are, these are our dead ends. Our dead ends, not God's dead ends, which are needed for a deeper reliance upon God. Let me, let me say this to you. Do you know, and I, I just want to give you a little insight that may help you as you navigate some spiritual battles in your life. Do you know why you continue to face dead ends in your life? Do you know why, let me just say it like this. Do you know why... Sometimes you continue to face these dead ends, experiences, because you're a lot like me. And I know that's really disappointing, right? But the reality is this. <clears throat> a deeper reliance upon God comes about when our situations dictate it. And if you and I have an option, option, we will always take things into our own hands to work them out. So as long as we have the, the power and the ability to work them out, our reliance upon God will remain shallow. God introduces dead-end experiences into our lives. Why? To pry our fingers from the will of control that we might have a greater reliance upon Him. If the smaller things would constitute a deeper reliance upon God, there may not be a need for dead-end experiences to constantly be surfacing in your life. 
but you're like me. And you will not, you will not dig deeper as long as you can manage. And God is then forced into our lives to produce in you and in me a deeper reliance. He then puts us in those spiritual cul-de-sacs that we continue to shake our heads at and say, how do I get here? How does this keep happening? And God is sitting up there saying, I need you to rely on me, Trent. And you're so prideful and arrogant in your own strength that you refuse to rely upon me. This is the exact same thing that happened to the Apostle Paul. So if you're not comfortable being in my company, you can be comfortable being in his company. Right? This is what the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He says this, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. You know what Paul had done? Paul had been put in a situation, a spiritual cul-de-sac. There was an issue in his heart, in his life. There was, a, there was a thorn in his flesh, as the King James would say, that God would not remove. And God said to him, what? Rely on me. Rely on me. Trust me. I'm going to take you deeper in your weakness, deeper into me, into, my, into a relationship with me. The other thing that you and I must conclude is that when God is seeking glory in our life, get this, Tim, get this, brother. This, this is what the scripture says. Let me read this. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. We should concede right off the bat that God receiving glory in our lives doesn't mean it will translate to glory for us in our lives. You know what I'm talking about? Do you, you, know what I'm ta- you know what I'm talking about, don't you, Reuben? To, for God to work out glory for himself doesn't always translate to us being elevated as well. As a matter of fact, let's go back to that scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to this. That is why for Christ's sake, Paul says, for, remember, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that scripture, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, doesn't sound too much like glorious, glorious experiences for the Apostle Paul. But remember what it says. This is for Christ's sake, for the glory of Christ. That all of these things are are manifesting themselves in my life. And he says, when those things, when I'm willing, when I'm willing to rely upon God and allow God to create in me a greater reliance, he then says what? Then I am strong. When I welcome all of these things, understanding what God is wanting to do in my life, then God flexes himself in my life and demonstrates his strength and his power. Now you guys know. You guys know, when the scripture says, then I am strong, it is the Greek word, dunamē, where we get the Greek dunamus, which means miraculous power, divine power. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, 
talks about this exact same power. And this is what it says. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, the dunamis, when we concede that for whatever reason, to bring us into a deeper, more intimate, more, more dependable uh, uh, dynamic in our relationship with God, that if these dead ends, these difficulties, these, these cul-de-sacs are presented, if we're willing to embrace that and go intimate with God through those things, then his power, his dunamis is then at work within us. The word dunamis, you guys, most of you know this, is where we derive the, the, the English word dynamite. Literally meaning the dynamite, explosive, miraculous power of God is at work within us when we concede what God is doing even in the dead end moments of our lives. Many of us don't realize that we're walking around a spiritual powder keg and all we need to do is trust God, trust God, trust God, and he's going to light that wick in your life. That is a reality. But instead, we're in that cul-de-sac and we're looking for the exit strategy. We're not seeing it the way God sees it. We don't understand he's working for his glory. Then the scripture, let's read on. When the king of Egypt was told, now this is funny. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Now, let me, let me say this. Even before we get into the scripture. Understand how the enemy works. I want you to get, the enemy works in our lives, Marissa. He works in our lives, Ronnie, when he perceives in us a vulnerable posture. Your daughter, her family, in a vulnerable position. If you think the enemy isn't looking at them and saying, now's the time to strike. And you know what God has said through us this morning? Now's the time to strike. You see what I'm saying? But the enemy will look for a, a moment that is advantageous to bring destruction into your life. And I want you to watch how this thing plays out right here because that's what's happening right here. It says, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had already fled. Now, didn't the king of Egypt already know that they had fled? Well, of course he did. Exodus chapter 12, verse 31 30 through 33 says, During the night Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people. You and your Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks, your herds, as you have said, and go. And also, bless me, the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country out of fear for their own lives, is what the Scripture goes on to say. Of course he already knew. But that's not what the Scripture is implying right here. What the Scripture is implying is this. It, and, and I want to read it, and then I want to explain. It said, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, what have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. Now remember, if you go back to the beginning of the scripture, God had already given a revelation to Moses about how the mindset of Pharaoh would be working. Didn't it? it isn't that Pharaoh simply found out, found out that they had left. He already knew they had left. 
But what God said Pharaoh would be thinking, not what he was saying, but what he would be thinking was this, that the Israelites were lost and wandering around in the desert, vulnerable. So at that moment, he then speaks, and he says to his officials, what in the world have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost, and have lost their services. Remember, Exodus chapter 14, verse 3, is when he says, the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed down by the, 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 the desert. God knew that. I want to encourage you with this. All right? Understand that not only does God know you, Tim, but he also knows the strategies of the enemy. You know what I'm talking about? Because God is sovereign, omnipotent. He knows all things, even the calculations of the enemy. Not only does he know the enemy, he knows the strategies of the enemy. He reveals them to us in his word. That is the reason it is important that we follow God's words because the strategies of the enemies are revealed to us in the word. And if you don't know the word, you don't know the strategies. You don't foresee it coming. You're blindsided. The beautiful thing about it, and I'll borrow the word playbook from the Tony Evans study we've been doing, the reality is God has the enemy's playbook and he has revealed the plays to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, it says this, In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. That's what Paul says. You and I, as followers of Jesus, have been literally illuminated with the knowledge of the schemes of the enemy. I mean, we should be able to foresee this stuff coming. We should be able to almost calculate it. And you know you really can, can't you? I mean, how many times are we really blindsided by the efforts of the enemy? He's so predictable, isn't he, Reuben? I mean, he's predictable. I see someone have a great week and everything's going good and they're praising God. And I sit back and I say, boy, they, they got a challenge coming. Right? You see it coming. God's doing a great work in your life. Then Uncle Johnny calls you complaining about you not visiting enough. You know, out of nowhere. You know what I'm talking about. Just silly things. Just out of nowhere. You can almost see it coming. You get a promotion at work. God is blessing you for whatever reason. I hope it's because you're a hard worker. And man, you're celebrating. You tell your wife that you get to work the next day and everybody who's working for you now resents you and is hostile towards you. You should have saw that coming. That's how the enemy is. He's predictable. And the scripture reveals a, a few things about the enemy. Reveals he's a liar. He's an accuser, a deceiver, and a manipulator. But the scripture also reveals something else. That the enemy's resistible. Resistible. He's resistible. When we allow God's dunamis, God's power to work in us. That's the reason James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter 4, verse 7, says this. Submit yourselves to God. What is he saying? What is he saying? If it's the cul-de-sac, then it's the cul-de-sac. Submit there. If it's this road or that road, submit there. Submit yourselves to God. And then what does the scripture say? We got the dunamis, we're submitted to God, the power that's working in us. And then what does the scripture say? Resist the devil and he will flee. 
All of us are doing this stiff arm thing, man, to the devil, resisting, 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 but there's no submitting, submitting, submitting. And God has said he's resistible, but it's contingent on submission first. And so we have to submit to God, right? Submit to God. Let the dunamis work in us, and then we can resist the devil. Because guess what? You're just a firecracker on your own. You ain't got no dynamite, Jack. You ain't got no real power in yourself. You're one of them black cat firecrackers. You might be a little better than the guy who got his down here at the tent at 4th of July, but you ain't dynamite. And so on and so we're looking at the devil, we strike at black cat. We're like, oh, we got devil. Devil's like, and we're like, they ain't afraid of your black cats. You know what he's afraid of? You know what he, he, he's repelled by? Dunamis. Dunamis. That's what he's repelled by. And so this is what's happening right here. He sees them at a place of vulnerability. And then this is what the scripture says. It says, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now listen, I've explained this you know, to the extent of nauseam, right? But I'll explain it again, and the reason I explain it again, there are people here who wasn't here when we explained it the first time, right? So those of you who have heard it, hey, go along for the ride. When the scripture talks about the Lord hardening the heart of Pharaoh, I want you to understand what that actually means. It does not mean that he makes Pharaoh choose evil and then punishes them for choosing evil. That's not what the scripture means. When you look at the Hebrew word, when you look at the Hebrew word for harden, it is kazak. We've covered this, Jay. And it literally means to strengthen or to allow to grow firm or strong. It is the idea that God strengthens Pharaoh's heart or gives him over to what his heart already desires. Literally in that moment, he says, this is what you want. I'm giving you over to it. I'm literally strengthening your predisposed position against me at this moment. So he allows him, he gives him over and says, there you go, have at it. Whatever restraining power that, is, that was at work in the heart of Pharaoh, God removes and allows him to get what he wants. And his heart is hardened. So that he pursued the Israelites. Now listen, this is another thing though that rubbed old Pharaoh the wrong way. You know how prideful people respond? I know. Watch how I respond sometimes when pride works up in my life. Ronnie, I feel like sometimes I'm, over here in the pool, I'm, the, I'm the ultimate confessor. Y'all got like the, the weakest, most vulnerable pastor in E-Town, maybe Kentucky. But this is what the scripture says. So that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. You think that didn't rub him the wrong way? That's one thing the Israelites were marching out. He told them to get out. But that, these cats marching out like the McDonald's All-American band at the Macy's Day Parade. You know what I'm talking about? They, they, got, this, they got this military uh, uniform, this, this division. And these cats walking out. And they ain't just walking out with their stuff. You remember what they're walking out with? They're walking out with Egypt's stuff. Egypt's silver, Egypt's gold, Egypt's wealth. They were walking. You think that didn't just burn him up, man? I think all that was being played on 
Jesse. All of it was being played on. And it says the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites. They pursued them. And then the scripture says as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And when you read that scripture isolated from the remaining scripture, you're like, go Hebrews, go. Cry out to God. But they do something right here in this scripture that in the New Testament is, is addressed. James addresses it. He says, with a tongue we bless God and curse men. And that's what's about to happen here. They find themselves in that cul-de-sac and they have no place to turn, so they turn on Moses. Right? Let me, let me say this to, to, to encourage you, my brothers and sisters. A lot of times, a lot of times in your life, when people are in conflict with God, and they express it in your direction because you're God's children, it really isn't you. It's what you're representing. That's what Jesus said. Hey, don't be shocked when they hate you. They hated me first. So when we find that hostility sometimes, and, and when things turn on you and you don't really understand that, be encouraged and know you're an agent of God, a vessel of God, and sometimes the opposition that you'll receive from other people is simply their vitriol directed not towards you, but really towards God. You see, you, you, you've experienced that, right? And it says, and they were terrified and cried out. And then they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us through the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Right? This is one of those moments where you have a, 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 a level 10 response to a level 1 infraction or conflict. And oftentimes when you get a level 10 response to a level 1 infraction or conflict, what that is is a, is a revelation of a dormant internal crisis that is aggravated in the conflict. You know, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? You know when, your dad, when you're a little kid, your dad, dad come home and, and you said the same thing to your dad that you've said every day for the last six weeks and, and he's given you a proper response and everything is fine and whatnot. And then on this given day, you, he comes home and you, you ask him the same thing and all of a sudden he blows up. And he's venting at you. And he's going off. And all of a sudden you're hiding in the bedroom. Dad's done went crazy on me. But you know, it didn't really have anything to do with you. It had to do with the boss. It had to do with the job site. It had to do with the person that you were doing the plumbing with. The air conditioner that you had fixed for someone. The car you had sold someone or the car you had bought. Then all of a sudden you bring this, you bring this stuff home. Let, let me say it like this. When um, we were younger, we, we used to have stray dogs. Dwayne, you know, dogs just, I ain't going to go into that story on Crawford's farm, brother. I ain't, look, look, he's hiding out. He knows. I ain't, I ain't telling that story. But I, I remember we used to, we used to uh, get some old stray dogs, and, and we'd, we'd name them, we'd keep them and whatnot. And, uh, you know, if you got dogs, man, hey, we're, we're adults here. Uh, you're going to end up with some dog dung. We'll just call it that, right? You know, it's going to be in the yard, man. It is what it is. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes that, that, that fresh dog dung smells really bad, right? And you're, like, what, and you're like, what do you mean sometimes? It always smells bad, right? But then after a while, after it's been dormant, 
You know, it doesn't smell quite. You don't even recognize that it's around, right? And it, it just becomes dormant and doesn't really have an odor. And it, 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 there, there's this hard, uh, you know. <laughs> but from time to time, you'll walk out in the yard as a little kid. I used to do this, and I would step in it. I would break the hard surface, and it would almost reactivate the stink. You know what I'm talking about? And everywhere I went, I was affected by stepping in someone else's dung because it was clinging to me. And that's exactly what happens and is happening right here. There are times in our lives that we're just going along, we're just doing the thing that God's called us to do and whatnot, and we don't know it and we done stepped in somebody's stink. And it had been laying dormant and we've stirred it up and now we have to deal with the smell. And it's pretty stinky. You understand what I'm talking about? Because dormant issues never resolve themselves. Just because you can't smell it doesn't mean it isn't present. And the moment it's stepped in, stepped on, stirred up, the stink is back. And that is what's happening right here. You know how I know that's what's happening right here? Because of the revelation of the very next verse. What they, how they respond to Moses. This is what they say. This thing goes back into slavery, back into Egypt. The cul-de-sac experience aggravates the dormant condition in their heart. This is what they say, Jose. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians? They, they've been traveling with Moses, and they've got a hostile, dormant posture already in them. And what happens? The cul-de-sac, the dead end, is the equivalent of Moses stepping in their stuff. And it stirs it up. And then all of a sudden, the critiquing comes. And the critiquing is born out of the past. When they were saying to Moses, you're causing too many problems in Egypt trying to get us free. And Moses should have responded and said, I ain't trying to get you free. God's getting you free. And that's exactly what happens here. The conflict stirs it up. And let me say this to you, my brothers, my sisters. Unresolved, dormant issues travel. They travel. They'll travel from this job to that job. They'll travel from this marriage to that marriage. They'll travel, travel from this relationship to that relationship. They travel. Unresolved issues travel. This church at church. Unresolved issues travel. And you'll come into a new place, a new job, and everything's dormant, and then all of a sudden some innocent bystander accidentally steps in your stuff, and they feel like they're in a hornet's nest because all of a sudden they're getting a level 10 response to a level 1 issue. And they're like, where did that come from? You and I can't carry that stuff around allowing other people to suffer because they've stepped in our stuff because we're not willing to resolve our stuff. I'll just move on. That ain't fixing your stuff. There's going to be an innocent bystander out there who will suffer 
That's collateral damage because unknown to them, you've placed your stuff under their feet. Now, if you're Moses with Trent's heart, you say to the Hebrews, deuces, right? Peace out. Get what you want. Whatever. You don't, you don't, okay, that's the way you want to row. But that's not how Moses responds. And I hope and pray, Jesse, that's really not how I would respond. Not if I'm in the Spirit, brother. You know what I'm talking about? Not if I'm operating the fruits of the Spirit. I'm not going to respond in fits of rage. You know what I'm talking about? That's not what the, that's not what the, the, the fruit of the Spirit is. Not when you're walking in the Spirit. Gentle and kindness, self-control, these things. And so what Moses says to them shames me at times. And this is his response. And Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. <laughs> Do not be afraid. Moses responds to the people out of the call of God on his life and not out of retaliation for what? The criticism. How do you do that, man? How do you do that? How do you take that criticism? How do you take uh, the betrayal? How do you take all those things and you look at that situation and you're still able to respond in a manner that's obedient to God and glorifies God? How do you do that? You're focused. You're, focused. you're not looking at the people. You're not hearing the people. You're focused on God. You're hearing God. Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 and 27. The Apostle Paul speaking, he says this. He's talking about being focused, Tim. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? Some focus, some not focus. But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into a strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I'm focused on the prize. I'm focused on the call. The NLT says, so I run with purpose in every step. Every step is focused. He said, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it a slave so that I have, so after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You know what he's saying? I bring myself into submission. I embrace the cul-de-sac if need be. Whatever it takes to discipline myself, to stay focused, that I might navigate the difficulties even if it requires, even if it requires the most brutal of discipline. That is what I will do. You know why? I want to win the race. And every one of us this morning should be saying with every bit of dunamis in us, I will do whatever I must do to bring glory to God and run this race 
untethered to the things of this world that he might be glorified in me. He says, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And we're closing right here. Confession number seven. There is nothing more exhausting and requiring the greatest effort of discipline than being still. Don't this sound so easy? The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. That sounds easy enough, don't it? Jeff, look. The Lord will fight for me. Okay, Wait, man. I'm just going to be still and trust God. I'm in a cul-de-sac. Just going to be still. How many of you is this easy for? I know most of you. I know the pull. I know the stretching thin of your life. I know how this thing's pulling at you. Man. There's nothing you work harder for than a moment of stillness. And most of us can never perceive the rescuing efforts of God because we're never still enough. We're never sitting. None of us find it easy to rest in the cul-de-sac. But you have to. That's what the scripture says. The Lord will fight for you. Contingency. You need only to be still. What if God wants you right there so his fighting efforts can be delivered right there and you're not right there? No, man, you're running this thing out. You're trying to find your own way out. You're trying to figure it all out. And God is delivering his rescue and efforts in that given place. And you're not there to be found. And then we're running all over the countryside and we're asking God, where is your help? And God said, I tried to pin you in. At the cold, I tried to pin you in. And even in my efforts to pin you in, to rescue you, you have resisted, fought back, and fled. And my efforts to love you have been fruitless for you. It used to be a lot easier getting up off my step. How do I stay focused? Every morning. Every, I ain't talking about every other morning. I'm not, this ain't a ritual. This ain't some nonsense that I'm saying follow this program. Every morning I'm in God's word. Not because I'm so super strong, it's because, Aaron, I'm so super weak. I know what happens, Gabe, when I'm not in it. I know how distorted my vision gets when I'm not in God's Word. I know how unfocused I can become, overwhelmed I can become, untrusting I can become when I'm not in God's Word. Can I sell you on prayer? 
Can I convince you that prayer is necessary? Not to talk about praying, but to pray. Every day we must be praying, and these things are so simple, and we enter into churches wanting for these elaborate, we want these, these elaborate secrets to be revealed to us that we might have a victorious life. And, this, and the reality is the answers are so simple. And they remain the same, and they will never change. It is God's word, it is God's prayer, and it is the fellowship with God's people that cannot be abandoned. For God has called you to be encouraged and to be an encourager. You cannot forsake these things and find yourself focused. And I say this to you, this last thing, you must serve. You must serve. And I'm going to tell you why. This ain't a, this ain't a, a works dynamic here I'm talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not it. But you must absolutely serve, and I'll explain it to you. When James says faith without works is dead, we love to read that. In, in the mindset of proving your faith by the work that you do. And there is an application for that. But there's another application. And the other application is this. The expressing of your faith, the working of your faith, breathes life into your faith. And you say, what do you mean, Trey? And I say this. When you give, when you serve, when you love, and you experience the flow of God's power and dunamis through your life, it becomes something that you cannot do without. It invigorates you. When people look at some of the people who serve here, and they say, man, I want a relationship. I want the intensity. I want the vibrance. I want the life that's in you to be lived out in me. No, I ain't going downstairs. I ain't giving it to the kids. I'm not going serving at the backpack thing. I'm not picking up my neighbor. I'm not doing it. But I want the vibrance. You have forfeited it. But not becoming a conduit in a channel by which God's spirit can flow through your life. God's word, God's prayer, the fellowship, the scripture it says not to forsake, and the service to become a conduit, a vessel of God by which his presence flows is absolutely essential, essential to remaining focused. Otherwise, you're so easily distracted, knocked off the course. Disabled, incapacitated, spiritually. So that's the first part of Genesis, uh, Exodus chapter 14. And that's where we're going to leave it. We're going to leave it with Moses saying, you need only to be still. What about you today?
saved, brothers and sisters. We're just in here. What about you today? Just being really honest. You're just being really honest. Are you focused? Are you really focused? Are you locked in? You say, not really, Trent. Things look kind of blurry. Where's it at? What's going on? Gotten away from God's word? Gotten away from prayer? Gotten away from the fellowship? Gotten away from serving? No wonder your eyesight is blurry. No wonder you've lost focus. Stand with me this morning. I'm going to ask Carrie to come just for a moment. With your heads bowed just for a moment. Your heads bowed. Your eyes closed. Out of reverence and respect for your neighbor, to your left, right, front, back. What's what's going on in your life, man? What about the focus? What about the focus? Hmm. I'm going to give you an opportunity this morning not to, not to talk to me. Lord knows you don't need to talk to me. There's nothing more I can say to you this morning than what I've said. There's nothing more. A conversation with me probably isn't what you need. Probably a conversation with him. You remember him? Remember the last time that conversation was had? You remember the last time that love was felt? You remember the last time? You felt focused, strengthened, engaged. You remember that? That's a faint memory, Trent. It may be. But as of this morning, it can be a whole new experience for you this morning. You say, Trent, I need to, I need to kind of dial things in. The polarity's gotten bad. There was a time, Trent, man, I was pushing 4K, 8K. Man, I'm 480P now. The good news this morning for you and for me is that God isn't like me. And he's not like you. And he looks at these Hebrews who cried out to him and then cursed his very agent. And he still rescues them. So you come into a place like this, I don't know what you're thinking, 
Could God love me? Does God love me? Man, you know what I've done, Trent. I don't really care. But if, you, if that's your argument, it's not really that important what you've done. Not pertaining to a relationship with God. It's more important what he's done. Because he bridged the gap that you couldn't bridge because he loved you. And this morning... He's speaking to you about re-engagement on his terms, on his terms. So what I'm going to do, I'm not responsible for anyone's response, nor will I drag this out, but the opportunity will be presented that I might go home with a clear conscience and say to you, the altars are open, a place by which you may engage God in prayer. That's for you. It is open. Both sides, front seats, whatever. Whatever. But do you remember what it was like to see clearly? That can be yours again. That can be yours again in the name of Jesus. This is your moment. This is your time. He waits.